First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about Prisoner of Azkaban, the movie. Welcome, everybody. So this is a very special episode because my friend Jesse comes on with me to talk about the movie version of Prisoner of Azkaban. But before we dive into the episode, I have a couple of announcements. So today is our one-year anniversary. We launched last year, right before Thanksgiving, uh, with the first three episodes of First Year's. Thank you everybody who has gotten into the podcast and shared the podcast and been on the podcast and has participated in our events. I am, it makes, just makes my day every time I see you guys on Instagram or on Twitter. And I am so grateful that you guys spend your time listening to the podcast. To celebrate that, we will be doing a giveaway that starts in a couple weeks. We are also going to have a giveaway like usual for our House Cup tournament. So, House Cup Cocktail Night is on Monday the 30th. Carissa Marston will be joining us again to talk about Harry Potter and to teach us how to make cocktails. So make sure you write that down on your calendar. That is the 30th. And then on the 7th, which is my birthday, we are going to start the giveaway for our one-year anniversary. We're going to be giving some good things away. So make sure you stay tuned for that. I'm very excited. Then we are going to take a break for Christmas and New Year's, and we are going to jump into Goblet of Fire in January. So I hope you guys are as excited as I am to start Goblet of Fire, but I also want everybody to enjoy their holiday. And with all of that out of the way, enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to episode 26 of First Years. We are wrapping up Prisoner of Azkaban today and going over the movie adaptation. And we have a very special guest. Jesse Boone is here to discuss the film with me. Hello. Hello, Sarah. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, I have a pretty high place in my heart for Prisoner of Azkaban as both a book and a movie. So it's going to be really cool to not only talk about just how great the story is in general, but specifically how the book stacks against the film. I'm really excited to, I'm so glad you agreed to do this with me because I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on the movie adaptation. So I'm really, I'm like really interested to know what you think about it. So I have, so what do you, okay, I guess let's start generally. Like, what do do you think of the movie overall? Overall, I think it is one of the better films. I think this usually lands in people's top three. People love to rank the movies as much as they love to rank the books. And what I typically find is that Prisoner of Azkaban usually sits in the top three of both mediums, film and book. Um, This is probably, I would say this one is probably my second or third favorite movie. 
Okay. What's the first one? Uh, nothing honestly ever dethroned Sorcerer's Stone for me. That's I think there is such detail and good world building. There's mystery and wonder in Sorcerer's Stone. And I don't want to fall down that rabbit hole because I could talk <laughs> about that one all day as well. But uh, I don't think they ever quite matched the, dare I say, magic of Sorcerer's mm -hmm. Stone. Yeah. But where I think Prisoner of Azkaban really stands out is... I think technically it's probably the best of all the films. And I think a problem, not a problem, a challenge this film faced was this is when the books really started to get larger and larger. Yeah, definitely. And I think what sets this film apart from all the others is the fact that the storytelling beats the story because there are plot holes in this film that are addressed in the book and I think this could have been a very easy film for fans to point at and say, well, why did they cut that? Why did they cut that? But the film is so technically well made and the storytelling is so visual and it says a lot more than pages and pages of words could that it works. So that's really interesting because I love looking at adaptations and I have always thought that even if movies make changes, um, as long as they're keeping like the spirit of the adaptation that they're making alive, then it usually tends to work. Um, I think a really good example of that is the Lord of the Rings films. They change a lot, they cut out a lot, but because the story thematically is the same, then it like people tend to overlook the changes. Because in this film, they leave out a lot and they also, <laughs> they change a lot. So like overall, I was, I was looking back through the book earlier today to sort of remind myself of certain changes. And it does follow like the plot events of Prisoner of Azkaban, the book, very closely. Aside from cutting out Quidditch almost entirely. Yeah. Cutting out the Firebolt completely. They, they cut out like a few classes here and there. Like we don't go to Transfiguration. We don't go to Potions. Um, and they cut out some like very important information. Like the, we do not get as much information when we are in the Shrieking Shack in the film than we do in the book. Um, also, Flitwick looks different. We have a new Dumbledore. The entire yes. layout of the Hogwarts grounds is different. The color palette of the movie is different. The fat lady portrait is different. But even all of those changes aside, it all, it all seems to work. It does. And I think that with so many changes that were made, especially from the Columbus films to now this one that's directed by Alfonso Cuaron, I think a lot of the changes were so jarring to the general movie going summer popcorn crowd, as I like to call them. <laughs> that even though this film made an astonishing $800 million, it's the lowest grossing of all the films. Wow. Which is very fascinating because this is ranked as one of the best ones right. by almost every hardcore fan. That's so, I see, you know, I was like really thinking about like Prisoner Azkaban for the last like 24 hours, like really like, cause I feel like everything sort of points to people should probably not like this movie as much as they do, but they do. And 
it's just like so interesting that it's sort of like an anomaly where it just like it doesn't really make sense but it works <laughs> yeah do you have you ever heard why alfonso cuaron agreed to do this film no uh he wasn't a fan of the uh the books he had never read them he had never even seen the previous two films and they approached him and he initially thought that he was going to turn it down but what really stood out for him was the cast and the fact that this story represents more change than we have seen in Harry Potter as of yet, because right. this is the beginning of the teenage years. Mm -hmm. And Alfonso Cuaron has a very extensive filmography. He has films like Y Tu Mama Tambien, Roma, Gravity, and all of those films are about difficult transitions. And beyond just being a normal teenager, which Harry most certainly is not, <laughs> this is a film and a book that sees Harry undertake some very difficult transformation in learning more about uncomfortable truths of the wizarding world, mm -hmm. uncomfortable truths of people around his family, Harry has to take greater, greater ownership of fear, doubt, pain, loss, and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like we're going to talk a lot about loneliness in this because yeah. the camera work captures Harry's isolation so well. Mm -hmm. And whereas I think most of the films, most of the films ultimately say, look at this amazing world, mm -hmm. this amazing world of Diagon Alley and Hogwarts and Hogsmeade. But this is the film more than any of the other adaptations that says, this is your world. As fantastical as it is, this is your world of doubt, of pain, of loss, of growing up, of that difficult adolescence. Mm -hmm. You know, we you see Harry be angsty in this film. Yes. Much more than Daniel Radcliffe was asked to do early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it really is a transition point where Harry is starting to grow up. And I think his situation in life is really starting, not that it didn't bother him before, but I think it's it's bothering him in a much deeper way. And what's interesting is that, like, I, I know I talked on this podcast when we first started Prisoner of Azkaban that it felt like a darker beginning. But what I noticed in the film is that this film, like, starts out funny. Yes. Like, it is dark, but, like, it opens with, like, eight. Hey, well, first of all, Harry's doing magic outside of school, which is, like, a very big no-no. I was so scared when I first saw that. I thought, this movie is going to suck. Right? Because <laughs> like, they're breaking a key rule right out of the Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, and, and it is a nod to, like, the book opening with, like, Harry doing his homework by flashlight. But it's funny how, like, Uncle Vernon comes in and Harry pretends to be asleep. And then he leaves and then Harry gets back up again. But then it's like we see, you know, um, the scene without Marge, which is funny. The night bus is funny. Like all of the, it, it's just a funnier beginning, even though it's like still a darker themed plot. Do you think that perhaps the darker lands better because it starts with that comedy and it almost lingers to the last energy and the last vibes of that Chris Columbus vibe of films. 
That's a good point. I didn't think about that. And I think you're right, because one of the things that did stand out to me is that even though it starts funny, as soon as we get on the train, like the humor stops dead in its tracks. All of a sudden it's rainy, it's dark, we get that bluish gray color that stays throughout the film. Um, So maybe it does, maybe it is sort of a tool of a transition between, you know, movie two and movie three. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the color because I feel, no spoilers of course, I feel like with the exception of Goblet of Fire, every film that followed adapted this darker yes. color palette. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I recently saw like a, um, one of those like products that's like, a, it's like a canvas, but it has like each frame from every movie, like it all, and it looks like a giant barcode of color and it's just like all blue and dark for Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. I mean, they even changed the color of the title. You know, Harry Potter and the blank had always been these big gold letters. And this yes. is the time it's like cold and gray. It's like the Dementors breathed on the title. <laughs> it's so true. So we also, like one of the bigger changes um, in this movie is also sort of how they handle Sirius Black, right? So we don't find out that he was on the muggle news. We actually don't find out until Harry's on the night bus and Harry doesn't have to like lie about his name or like anything like that. Um, You know, so it's on the bus where that's where he finds out that, you know, Sirius Black was an Azkaban. He was a supporter of Voldemort. Um, But then I also, like we don't get the scene where in the book, Harry overhears Mr. and Mrs. Weasley talking about whether to warn him or not. Mr. Weasley just does it in the Leaky Cauldron. And I absolutely love that scene. I like how they move between each column until they're like in this like shadowy corner while like they're talking about this guy that's like could be after Harry. Yeah, and I think it's because when when terrible things happen in life, like if there's a crazy killer on the loose, like Sirius Black supposedly, it never becomes tragic until we realize how much we are involved and how much we are affected. And, you know, when Harry finds out in the crazy night bus scene, oh, Sirius Black is this crazy guy who supported Lord Voldemort. Oh, okay, so he probably doesn't like me, but I'm gonna keep that information to myself. But then we start to leave this happy, leaky cauldron, busy dining room scene to slowly move away from the action all in the same shot, by the way. The camera does not move. Yeah, that's, that's all right. one continuous shot, which mm-hmm. is a signature of Quaron. And Mr. Weasley is talking to Harry, and Harry suddenly starts to realize this involves me. I'm the one that's actively in danger. It's not just a general threat to the populace. And that very long take finally ends on a close-up of Daniel Radcliffe, which there are not a lot of close-ups in this movie but that's one of them. That's such a good observation. Cause I feel like the only other one I can really think of that stands out is right after he finds out that Sirius Black was his godfather, right? Yes. Which, um, did you know that that was actually one of Daniel Radcliffe's audition scenes before he even got the part? Really? Yes, there is a, there is a YouTube clip of Chris Columbus the original director of the first two movies, 
reading scenes with Dan because Columbus was originally going to do all seven. Okay. Um, and one of the other scenes I remember is uh, Harry talking to Hagrid about Norbert and <laughs> Yeah. how dangerous a dragon can be. And it's, right. it's this nice, cute child actor scene. But then Columbus gives him a scene where in the Prisoner of Azkaban movie, uh, Hermione pulls the cloak off Harry, who's just been crying. And little nine or 10 year old Dan at the time has to do this scene of he was their friend and he betrayed them. Yeah, but Harry, you can't go looking for black. I hope he finds me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is a crazy scene to ask a nine-year-old to do. Yeah, really? Yeah. Wow. But that is that is the signature of this film. This is where things start to get darker, start to get a little more raw, and they start hitting more close to home, which could be why it resonates so much. Definitely. Yeah, it, it's just like, it. it it's so... I mean... Even I could tell, like, that in the beginning when, like, Aunt Marge is, like, over for dinner, like, Harry just, like, doesn't give a shit about anything. Like, he just sort of, like, shrugs and he's like, whatever. And then he, like, loses it, you know, in a very similar way as to as to when he's, when, when he's talking to Hermione in that scene. And one of the things that I think this movie does really well is it keeps the pacing really tight. It, yes. everything is constantly moving. Um, they essentially what they did was they come like in the book, they combined like when Harry goes to Hogsmeade, those like two or three different times, they essentially just combined that into like one scene. So Harry goes to Hogsmeade once that's where he finds out about Sirius Black. That's where he sort of, you know, fucks around, you know, with Malfoy throwing snow at him. Um, <laughs> You know, so so all of that is like captured in that one sort of collection of scenes. And so they really don't waste time sort of going back and forth. It's just like Harry gets the map and like, you know, goes to Hogsmeade and then sort of figures everything out in that one visit. Yeah, it's it's a conundrum that I think we accept because one of the studio notes after Chamber of Secrets was, hey guys, these films are getting too long. You've got to cut them down. Um, And so this film, Prisoner of Azkaban, is actually 20 minutes shorter than Chamber and 10 minutes shorter than Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, wow. And the problem is the books, the source material is getting bigger. Yep. (laughs) So uh, kudos to them for being able to, as you said, put all these different scenes together And pacing, I think, is really huge in this film. And something that I think as filmmakers they do to help that um, are the long takes and a constantly moving camera. You could just set up a camera and have them sitting at tables talking expositionally, which I think it could have been so easy to do with this source material. But instead, the camera is handheld. It's constantly moving closer and around people and the information feels more alive and feels more moving. It has more of a rhythm than I think it would have had if they had just plumped them in the Gryffindor common room and had them talk. Yeah, and I think, and I think there, well, there's two things, I guess. Like, I think this is one of the first movies that really sort of knew its audience 
and so didn't spend as much time explaining things because it did rely on you sort of knowing who was behind the Marauder's Map and knowing why Harry's Patronus form is important because they don't explain that at all. Um, But so this is like where they really, like they're able to cut things out without it sort of then being confusing, which I think is why it sort of survives, you know, having the Shrieking Shack scene be not as much of a, of an information overload as it yeah. is in the book where we need all of this information sort of, you know, playing out because it's very pivotal. Um, so then you're able to sort of make the movie without fearing that people are going to get confused. And maybe that's why it works. And maybe that's why they're able to get away with like cutting the firebolt subplot and sort of, Sirius Black only tries to break into the common room once instead of twice. There's um, no Sir Cadigan. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so that's, that's also what's really interesting is that, you know, they're starting to familiarize themselves like with their audience and they then don't need to spend as much time explaining things like you would need to if it was in you know, if it didn't have a source material to fall back on. Yeah. And, you know, most of the audience has read the books. And so I think there's an interesting scenario where, okay, we know that our audience knows the story very well. They're going to go into this film already knowing how it goes and how it ends. And we already have to cut stuff. So that's begs the question, what do we show them? And I think mm-hmm. what they do very well is they add these great moments and scenes that get to flesh the characters out in ways that the books didn't even show. For example, one of my favorite scenes is right uh, when Hogwarts, when the term at Hogwarts begins and the boys are up in the common room with Seamus and Neville and they're eating candies that make them sound like different animals. And I think, isn't it nice to just see them being teenagers? Because then it actually gets to sink in where they are in their lives. I had that written in my notes too. I thought that was a really cute scene to like have this sort of moment of relaxation and see what these boys do like when they're not at class. Because like the first two movies, it's like we didn't really get to see them like hang out, hang out. They were constantly trying to like solve mysteries and stuff. And wouldn't you want to see them hang out? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, especially because, like, I know the movies sort of have to focus more on, like, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, but, like, in the books, like, we do get interactions with, like, Seamus and Dean and Neville. Like, they're important, too. Like, they are, like, all, they're, I mean, not all five of them are best friends, but they are all friends. Like, they share a room, you know, all throughout Hogwarts. So that's really nice to see as well. But one thing that um, I wanted to bring up was that we did say that this movie has very good pacing. Two, there are two extended scenes within this film where sort of time kind of stops a little bit. The first is on the night bus. That's like an extended scene where we see it like go through, go, go through London. Um, and the other one is when Harry rides Buckbeak. So these are two sort of scenes where 
it's a little less about the plot and it's a little bit more about having fun, but Harry's traveling in both of them. So what do we think that means? What I love about the night bus is that it's our first real look in the films about what the rest of the wizarding world is like outside of Hogwarts. Because we don't really see in the films what the rest of the wizarding world looks like. Because we don't go to Hogsmeade in, in the first two books. But the night bus is our first take on what other jobs that are not teachers at Hogwarts look like. We get to see how civilians of the wizarding world casually interact with one another. We see the weird, freaky, um, almost psychedelic night bus movements through the traffic next to this crazy John Williams waltz. And we just see how these other wizards are fine with it. Stan doesn't seem phrased. I mean, I cannot believe that someone like Stan thinks that what the night bus does is so normal. Right. But I, I, I want to see crazy stuff happen on screen and have the wizards go, yeah, it's just a day in the life. Um, right. there's, a, there's a quick little shot uh, it's, that's not in the book. Uh, Harry's staying at the Leaky Cauldron, and there's a housekeeping lady that goes mm-hmm. by, and her broom is just following her because... Mm-hmm. It's a magical broom. She opens a door and says something like housekeeping. And then like a monster roars from inside the room. And she just stares like, damn, it's another Monday, isn't it? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So like, actually speaking of like that scene, like, because right after that, we get introduced to the monster book of monsters. And like, this is a tiny, like insignificant detail, but I feel like I just have to share it. Cause I was like, oh, wow. I always thought like the little legs on the front were like spider legs. And I realized they're actually tentacles. Oh, wow. I, I feel like I just rewatched the movie last night and I think I didn't even notice that. Like I just noticed it when it, there's like a close up of the book and then it sort of like raises it and there's little like suckers on the bottom. And I was like, Okay, so this thing is like part octopus, part spider, part whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I love I love being able to see later in the Care of Magical Creatures class. It's fun to visually see the many different ways that the students have restrained their books. Yes. And poor Neville. That guy just can't catch a break. I know. I know. And you know who else can't catch a break? Hagrid. And No. I really, like, the scene with, like, Draco is, like, already infuriating in the book. In the film, there is no blood. Like, you are fine. (laughs) Like, you are not dying. There is, you literally did not even get scratched. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's very interesting that um, Malfoy gets whacked and then he shouts, my arm. And I noticed that Robbie Coltrane, the Hagrid actor, he doesn't even, like, bend down to look at the arm he barely even looks at it he's like you're fine like why wouldn't you be <laughs> literally fine? you're fine <laughs> uh and then what i really love about the buckbeak ride as you mentioned mm-hmm. is i love that harry actually enjoys the ride in the movie although he yeah. doesn't in the book mm-hmm. and um because i feel like the audience would not be as invested in this magical world if Harry was flying a freaking hippogriff and was like, God, this sucks, doesn't it? (laughs) I prefer brooms. I guess this is okay. 
No, he's sticking his arms out like he's on Titanic shouting, I'm king of the world. Right. And I love that they fly over the lake. Mm -hmm. They fly over the castle and by the astronomy tower, which that's some foreshadowing. (laughs) Instead of in the book, they just go over the forest once. But here we get to see the grounds fleshed out. Mm -hmm. We get to see more of Hogwarts. Right. I know. And usually in the first two movies, that transition was saved for Hedwig. And so yes. it's it's kind of nice that we get to see like a new winged creature sort of give us that um, sort of traditional exterior shot of Hogwarts. Yeah. I'm fascinated by Buckbeak in both the book and the movie because Buckbeak is the first likable creature that has major uh, plot significance. We've, we've seen Fox mm-hmm. and we've seen the unicorns, but Buckbeak is the first major animal that we see that's not trying to kill our heroes. <laughs> right, exactly. Although he is perceived to be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I really like, I mean, I mentioned how we can see more of Hogwarts I love that they add locations like the courtyard and there's mm-hmm. even a fountain in the courtyard. Cause why yeah. wouldn't these kids at a school have a normal thing like that? I love that there's a clock tower with a little pendulum. That's always taunting Harry saying, you are going to be alone. They have left you for Hogsmeade and I am going to slowly rock back and forth mm-hmm. to torment you. And then of course the, the clock tower also foreshadows the time turner that gets used. Right. Yeah, and, and one of the things that shocked me was that, so I, I would almost argue that Hermione is sort of like disappearances and reappearances are more obvious in this movie than they are in the book. Like, it's sort of like a running theme in the book where you're like, okay, that's kind of weird. Like, she was there and then she's not. But like, Ron like actively points it out in like multiple classes <laughs> where he's like, where, where, where did she come from? Like, you know, he, he really, you know, points it out. Um, and what I was surprised by is that, like, you know, Hermione doesn't really talk about it that much, but, like, in Care Packageable Creatures, when she, like, walks forward and tells Hagrid that he, he has to take Draco to the hospital wing, it's just, like, right there. Like, it's just, like, out in the open. Like, she's not trying to hide it at all. Doesn't she even, like, tuck it in her shirt? Not in that scene. Okay. okay. I think later on, like, she does pull it out from the inside, but in that scene, she's just, like, blatantly wearing it. Like a, like a regular neck, necklace. Yeah. The time turner is really fascinating in this film. Mm-hmm. I love the lawn shot of when they use it and you see all the students swirl by in the hospital yep. wing. Um, it's interesting because I feel like every big franchise eventually turns to time travel. That's an interesting point. Yeah, although the Harry Potter one did it relatively early, which is fascinating. Yeah. And then never went back to it, which I'm no. grateful for. Right. Unless you've seen uh, Cursed Child. <laughs> We're going to have a whole debate at some point on whether or not Cursed Child is canon. Well, I will grab a butterbeer and a fire whiskey to sit through that one. <laughs> <laughs> I do oh, like boy. sort of the tools they used within the Time Turner scenes um, where Hermione has to like throw the rocks to sort of hit Harry and get their attention and sort of start the process of like fixing time. Um, I thought that was a really good way to sort of 
show that, oh, they've been back here before. This isn't like a one-time thing. They aren't doing this for the first time. It already happened. Yeah. And I love that uh, um, Professor Lupin runs afoul of Buckbeak in the in the Forbidden Forest. And yes. Harry just says, he is not having a good night, is No, he? not at all. I mean, that's huge that we learn that like a hippogriff can like go up against a werewolf. I think that's big news. Um, I also thought it was funny that Lupin, so I had talked about in our werewolf episode about how in some legends, like werewolves would not have a tail. And so they would run around on three legs and stick like one of their back legs behind them to look like a tail. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So um, Lupin, his werewolf form does not have a tail, but can confirm in the film that he runs on all four legs. He does not stick one out behind him. Yeah. It's it's cool looking at the different designs for the werewolf and the grim because yeah. I would have thought Sirius would turn into a bigger dog next to the size of this werewolf. And I'm picturing just how big would proms had to have been in order to keep that thing in check. Right. Right. So true. And, you know, sort of going going along like with Sirius's animagus form is that like we really only see it like once before they go up to they go under the Whomping Willow. Like the first time is like before Harry gets on the night bus. The second time we see like the shape in the sky when Harry's playing Quidditch and it's rainy. I don't like that. (laughs) Like so I'm not sure like they sort of leave out Harry's like rumination over like whether or not like this is actually a death omen. Like, is he going crazy? Is this just a coincidence? They kind of leave that out. And I think that's also an example of like relying on the audience to know what that means and to know like sort of, it's like a nod to it without having to spend a lot of time on it. Um, But you're right. But, but it's just interesting how like, you know, Harry never sees the death omens book in Flourish and Blots, like he does at the beginning. Um, and it is handled in divination class masterfully by Emma Thompson, who I don't think they could have cast a better choice to play Trelawney. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it's a little bit more subtle, this sort of death omen grim thing in this movie than it is in the book. It's so interesting how the grim is handled and how Harry's acknowledgement and fear of it is handled, because I feel that if Alfonso Cuaron made this again, he might have been very tempted to include more of Harry's mm-hmm. paranoia and uncertainty about the Grimm, because that is all across his filmography. Mm-hmm. The main character has this idea that I'm not going to escape this situation. I cannot remove this inevitability of dread and darkness from my life. And I thought, well, the Grimm might've been a perfect way to constantly toy with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think that also would have been a really good way to sort of make it a little bit more adult, <laughs> which I think this story is, um, yeah. you know, cause, cause it's hinted at, you know, and, and we do see Harry's loneliness as you were speaking about before and sort of like, that shot where he's like standing alone while everybody else goes to Hogsmeade is just like terrible and heartbreaking. And I, yeah, I do think they could have probably gone a step further where it's like, if you already feel lonely and you know that somebody's after you, 
and you're seeing a deaf omen, like that could have been a very interesting internal conflict for us to see. Yeah, and picking a filmmaker that specializes in that makes it even more reassuring that this was the perfect man to direct the story that has the most Lupin. Mm-hmm. Because Lupin is such a sad, lonely character who yes. feels that he can never escape this curse behind him. I mean, the werewolf is Lupin's own grim. Mm-hmm. It constantly follows him. The Bogart turns into the moon. It's always looking at him, and he feels that he can't get out of this. And it's a very lonely life that he leaves. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love that every scene that Lupin and Harry have together is in these isolated environments, whether they're on that new Hogwarts bridge that they added for this Mm -hmm. movie. It's very contemplative. It's very wide. The space breathes and they're just looking out over the lonely British fog. Mm -hmm. I love that they go walking through the woods. They're just casually walking through the forest, but I love that we see the forest in daytime finally. Right. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you point that out. And now that you have said that, I think I appreciate those scenes more. Um, Because I had in my notes that I thought it was a little odd to have Harry sort of like walking in the woods alone with Lupin and like being on the bridge alone with Lupin because I think Harry as a character, I think has a lot of respect for Lupin. I think he is like, oh my God, this is the best teacher I've ever had. Um, And I think he respects him enough to like ask him, like, I need help with this Dementor situation. Harry in general, though, doesn't seem like the type of kid that would be like, yeah, I'm just going to like go for a walk with my teacher and like hang out with my teacher outside of class. Like he doesn't seem like that kind of guy unless it's like Hagrid, but Hagrid was a friend first before he was a teacher. Um, So from a character standpoint, I was like, okay, I'm not sure that fully makes sense for Harry. But I think cinematically, now knowing what you just pointed out about it, I think you're right. It does work really well when we see both of these characters that are very that are struggling with things on their own that no one else can really like help them carry really you know even the blocking in those scenes hints at that because lupin turns away from harry on the bridge and is staring in the opposite direction where he talks about how lily could always find the light in people even when they couldn't find it in themselves Mm -hmm. and you as a person who's read the books know exactly what lupin is talking about Mm -hmm. and then when they're doing their patronus lesson harry is turned away from lupin staring at the fire next to him as he's talking about remembering his parents voices Mm -hmm. these two are very private very reflective and they're the two loneliest people at hogwarts Mm -hmm. in their own ways Absolutely. And I, and you know, I think I, I do really like the casting, I think, of Remus Lupin. I think it works really well. Um, like his appearance works really well as well. And I think, you know, there is sort of this underlying bond, you know, w- within these scenes where, you know, we, we never really, I mean, we do find out in the movie that like Lupin was friends with James and Lily, but I think but not sort of to the extent that we find out in the book. Like we're, we were like, oh, okay, these guys were best friends. And I think, you know, they, they did capture that sort of underlying like love that Lupin probably does have for Harry, you know, because of being so close to Harry's parents. 
Lupin sticks out in both the movie and the book because he immediately treats Harry like he's known him for years. Mm -hmm. Um, He doesn't ask him his name. He doesn't stare at his eyes or his scar. He just immediately says, here, Harry, have some chocolate. Yeah. As though like if James and Lily were still alive, Lupin would have spent years checking in on him and Mm -hmm. getting to know him. And Harry would have probably treated him like an uncle. Right. I definitely agree that the casting, I, I can, but I butchered the name, David Thewlis. Yeah. Is that how you say it? David mm-hmm. Thewlis. David Thewlis was spot on for Lupin. Do you know that he actually almost auditioned, not audition, almost auditioned. Did you know that he actually auditioned to play Quarrel? Oh my God. That would have been a very different movie. Would have been such a different Quarrel. I'm, I'm glad he ended up as Lupin instead. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of, I've heard a lot of stories of actors that had like originally wanted like a specific role and then you know, ended up in a different role in the same film. And, you know, it's always been for the better, you know, like the same thing with like Christopher Lee wanting to play Gandalf and not, and then gets cast as Saruman. It's just, that would have been such a different trilogy <laughs> had Christopher Lee play Gandalf, you know? Um, yeah. Speaking of Lupin, what do we think of how they presented the Dementors in this film? I love, the the book only ever describes it as Harry's insides turned cold or he Mm -hmm. felt the air leave. I love the use of turning water into ice to signify the Dementors coming because I think it's very, very practical that a creature who represents fear um, is something that you always see signs of it before it actually appears. Mm -hmm. As if you see the water bottle turned to ice, you see the windows turned to ice, or you see the moisture around his broom turned to ice. Mm-hmm. And you start to get filled with dread before these things even show up. Yeah. As if what you're picturing is going to be worse than what they actually look like. And they look pretty terrifying already. Yeah. Like, I, I definitely think they nailed it. I think you're right. It was a very powerful tool to sort of have the visual of everything sort of um freezing you know and even the exterior shot where we see like the flower like collapse and die like as it like goes by um what did we think about the visual of how like the blurriness around the faces when they're actually like trying to like suck out the memories i love that there's blurriness and vagueness to the design because in a weird way it actually perfectly matches the bog art Mm-hmm. Um, it's different to everybody. Maybe, maybe the Dementors even look different to every person, just mm-hmm. a little, just a little bit. And whatever your darkness is, your depression, your fear, your insecurity, your imagination and your heart will fill in exactly what that blank Dementor face <laughs> looks like. Yeah. It's meant to be a mirror of you, mm-hmm. um, which is so interesting that Harry's Bogart is a dementor what he fears is fear itself Mm -hmm. yeah and and i think i think that says a lot about harry and sort of this especially with like the life he comes from you know where he really hasn't been given sort of the space to like live or sort of explore his own interests and so i think he does feel like the like the sorting hat says in like movie one where he has a thirst to prove himself you know i think he doesn't want to be like 
considered weak in a lot of ways, you know, and I think that's probably why Dementors are, you know, his biggest fear. Yeah. And, you know, I, I accept that this film had to have a shorter runtime. It's dealing with a book that's even longer. But that is one thing that I wish we could have gotten more Quidditch for mm -hmm. because Quidditch is such a powerful motivation for Harry because it's what he's good at. He really wants to win that Quidditch Cup. And that is where the Dementors keep appearing, or at least mm -hmm. the threat of them keeps appearing. Right. He tells Lupin he wants to learn to fight the Dementors in case they show up at the next match. Right. Um, <laughs> it would have been funny to see another Quidditch match that showed Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle <laughs> dressed yes. as the Dementors. But we do see it at the Carib <laughs> Right, we do, yeah, we get, a, we get a hint of it for sure. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's it's interesting sort of how they handle Quidditch in this. And, and you know, because they don't introduce the Firebolt, once Harry's broom is destroyed, that's sort of it for Quidditch for the rest of the movie. Um, that also takes away the entire friendship conflict between Harry, Ron, and Hermione. We don't get that in this film. Because yeah. Scab we never learn that Scabbers is, like, kind of sick. Um, we we sort of hear that like Scabbers is missing all of a sudden, and Ron blames like blames it on Crookshanks. We don't get to see any of that, and then because there's no firebolt for Hermione to turn in, and sort of have McGonagall take it away, that whole like friendship struggle is just non-existent, really. Which I think could have been huge for this film because it is so huge in the book. This is how you know, people become teenagers and growing up often means growing apart. You don't always have the same friends that you have. And I think to tease the idea, we might actually break up the dream team. The dream team might actually be moving far apart because Ron is mad at Hermione because of Scabbers, who I, I was a I was shocked when I first saw this movie that they supposedly killed Scabbers off screen. Right, <laughs> right. Even though I knew he'd be back. Right. Um, but then, yeah, I, I agree with you that the firebolt is huge for starting a rift between Harry and Hermione. Mm -hmm. I um, also think seem... it's an important tool for like the threat of Sirius Black as well. Yes, yeah. And I think it would have been great to add to those themes of inevitability, of coming dread, that there's just some things you can't escape from. Sirius Black, or the threat of him, is circling around Harry's life through the Dementors, through the Grimm. It would have been great to see him manifest that threat through the Firebolt, because that is such a source of comfort and purpose for Harry, is Quidditch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it, like losing his Nimbus 2000 is a very big moment in the book, emotionally yeah. for Harry. Um, that's like one of his first like prized possessions, really, <laughs> um, that, has, that has been with him since he's almost since he started school you know so i think we i think like for this movie we really do we just harry's internal conflict say that again we lose the internal conflict yeah i think we lose yeah. some of the internal conflict that harry that harry has in this movie um we see it sort of as somebody you know as like a bystander in like the visuals um, yeah. but we don't really get to like really see how all of these things are affecting him. Yeah. 
without spoilers, do you feel that there's a movie that captures that internal struggle a lot better or a lot more accurately, you think, without um, going into details? Yeah, I think, okay, movie five is not my favorite, but I think that does sort of capture the internal struggle of Harry. I would have been very worried if it hadn't with how freaking long that book is and how in-depth <laughs> it is about Harry's struggle. Yeah. Yeah, if they didn't get that, I would have I would have had some questions. Yeah, I, I, I just think visually in that movie, we, without spoilers, we just sort of, there's more shots of Harry and we sort of understand how he's feeling from, from how they filmed it. Yeah. Do you ever wonder uh, when you rewatch the films, whether it's preparation for these episodes or if it's for your own pleasure and study, do you ever wonder how differently these on-screen depictions might have been if this were remade today as a series? You know, that's such a hard question to answer because I think half of that battle would be the casting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, while I think, you know, part of the struggle of these movies were not all of the books were out. So True. the screenwriters really didn't know what was important and what wasn't. That being said, I just don't know where you get a better Snape. Like, I just don't no, know where you, don't you find get him. it. <laughs> you know, you just like, <laughs> don't find him. Um, so there's that. Like, I think from a casting standpoint, um, but I don't know. I mean, like, what I guess, like, okay, what do you think about the new Dumbledore? Because I guess that's sort of like one of the things that would change if they were to remake it. We get like a whole new cast and we actually do get a new person playing this really important character in this that's, film. That's true, because we, we do see it when Michael Gambon takes over for Richard Harris. Um, it's tough for me. It's tough because Dumbledore is my favorite character from the stories. And I thought Richard Harris was so perfect as Dumbledore. I know so that there are people, there are people who absolutely adore Michael Gambon's performance and they think that he's their Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. They have doubts about whether Richard Harris would have been able to handle the darker stuff from the later books. Um, but Michael Gambon just does not have that twinkle in his eye quality that I, I think agree. is so important for Dumbledore. And Richard Harris, we see it in Harry Potter and in his other films, he can command a room by just standing there. Yeah. He does yes. not have to raise his voice. And I feel Michael Gambon in these movies has to raise his voice in order to command more authoritative presence. That um, is like one of the big things I have always said about Richard Harris is that he only raises his voice once. And that's when like there's chaos in the great hall over <laughs> a troll coming in. Um, yes. Other than that, he really doesn't like his soft voice and the way he holds himself is more than enough to command authority and respect. And I don't know whether it's primarily Harris or if it's a combination of Harris and the first two scripts. I know these, these scripts all came from the same, same guy who, who worked with Rowling, but I think Richard Harris in those first two movies understood Dumbledore's humor mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. And I think Michael Gammon has some really good moments in the future movies of mm -hmm. Dumbledore's humor. I don't think they really show up in this film. 
He's a little rough around the edges compared to Richard Harris, I think. He is, and again, without spoilers, it really goes too far in the fourth movie. I look at I look at how he's directed in that film, and I think that's just not Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll, that will be a story for another time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, there's one genius Dumbledore moment in this film, and that's when they come back from the. Uh, the time turner, they run up to him. They're out of breath. They've just had this crazy adventure. They're like, we did it. We did it. And he's like, did what? Night, night. And yep. he just walks yes. down the stairs. Yeah, I, that would be like the most Dumbledore moment, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I see <laughs> that moment. Film. I'm like, that, that right there is Dumbledore. There's the twinkle in his eye. There's a little bit of, I know a secret. I know right. what you're up to. Right, exactly. But before that, you've got Dumbledore resting his hand on Ron's broken leg. Which, yes. Which I'm like, why are you telling him to do that? Why are you having him <laughs> cause pain? Like, I get it. We all love resting grint face as much as the next person. <laughs> but why are you having him attack Ron's injured leg? <laughs> I was speaking of injured legs. Um, this was so weird. Uh, when the Quidditch team visits Harry in the hospital wing and they show him his broken nimbus. There's a, there's a wide shot that shows the Hufflepuffs gathered around their player, who we assume to be Cedric. Right. Um, and there is a Hufflepuff player that looks like he's either yanking Cedric's leg or he's stabbing him with something. <laughs> um, and I know you can see me, but the audience can't. He's doing this motion in the background. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're not Madame Promfrey. What are you doing to this man's I, leg? I'm going to have to rewatch the film because I did not notice that. Um, yeah. Steven, who we have had on this podcast before, has talked about, like, the moment in the Quidditch match where, like, this seeker who is supposed to be Cedric, who we will meet in the next book, just, like, gets electrocuted and, like, falls from his broom. And, like, we, like... I, I don't know, like we like we see Dumbledore like actively save Harry, but we never really get to see like Cedric get saved in that moment <laughs> in the film. Yeah, he just let him fall. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> there's there's someone else whose broom catches fire. I don't see anybody else putting that out. Right. I but know. Heaven forbid if Harry's in trouble. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I don't even know why it's legal for them to play Quidditch in that weather anyway. Like, it makes no sense to me. Like, not just is, like, the weather bad, but, like, you are playing a game um, up in the sky when it is, like, actively thundering and lightning out. Yeah. Um, Another thing about that match that I wish they had kept from the book is I really wish Cedric had caught the snitch. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... Throughout all the books, I hate how perfect Harry is in Quidditch. That man almost never loses. Like, it always takes an injury for Mm -hmm. him to lose. Right. And I want to see, because losses always reveal more character than wins. Right. And it's such a great character moment in the book that he loses his first match at the same time he loses his Nimbus. And that reputation is so important to him. I really wish that he had gotten to lose that in the movie. Yeah. I, yeah. Like Quidditch is definitely one of those like 
things where Harry becomes a little bit untouchable <laughs> as a character. Like there's no real flaw there. Super seeker. Da, 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 da. <laughs> exactly. Um, so one of the biggest changes they make in this film is has to do with Peter Pettigrew and the Marauders map. Um, in the movie, Harry sees Peter Pettigrew on the map and goes searching for him within the school. And it's in this scene that Snape finds him, tries to read the map, and then Lupin comes in and, like, saves his butt, right? Yeah. Um, And Snape says in that scene, you know, it's supposed to be Lupin's area of expertise. And in the film, it seems sort of sincere, right? That he's asking Lupin, like, what is this? In the book, it seemed more like trying to catch Lupin out because I think Snape recognized the Marauder nicknames. Oh, yeah. But also this scene of Harry in the hallway after dark just, like, doesn't exist in the book. Yes. It's one of those changes that I'm okay with (laughs) because in the book... Lupin says in the Shrieking Shack that he was keeping an eye on the map in case they tried to sneak off to visit Hagrid. Right. And that's when he sees Peter on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you could have had David Thewlis simply say that in the Shrieking Shack. But because we as a film audience always see everything from Harry's perspective, mm-hmm. I'm okay with Harry being the one to see it because he still does tell Lupin and Lupin still has that reaction. I love that we actually get to see Lupin's reaction to, hey, Peter Pettigrew is still alive. Right. No, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of a visual medium, I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. We get to discover it at the same time Harry does and we get to see Lupin's reaction in real time. Yeah, I I agree. I think it works really well in in this circumstance where it does set up sort of like the map doesn't lie sort of thing. And then we sort of get a hint of, um, that Peter, that there's something else going on and that Peter Pettigrew is alive and that's shocking. And then we sort of figure out later, like, Oh yeah, it's not a mistake. Um, I think there, there is a good payoff between the two. Yeah. Um, and I love that Snape is just walking around in pitch darkness before. I was thinking about that. I'm like, <laughs> you're just walking around the castle with like absolutely no light on. It's fine. Like, And I get that maybe you want to sneak up on Harry. But then after Harry leaves with Lupin, a painting tells Snape to bugger off. Mm-hmm. And Snape, without anybody else around, without trying to ambush anybody, flicks his wand off and goes back to walking in pitch darkness. <laughs> And that's why I'm not going to drop the theory that Snape is a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of Snape, they totally leave him in the Shrieking Shack. Oh, 100%. Attach him to any strings. Yeah, they they just leave him knocked out. (laughs) So you were going to... So imagine this scenario. You bring Pettigrew up to Dumbledore's office and say, hey, here's the supposed mass murderer who we're friends with now and here's the real mass murderer we know lupin's a werewolf and professor snape was there well where's snape oh harry we left him oh that's right we did (laughs) but they they would not feel bad about that like not whatsoever (laughs) um but i do have to say like snape does emerge from the Wampig willow 
know. And it stood out to me that he like active, like when he turns around and realizes there's a werewolf right there, like he throws his arms back to like defend these kids, which I yeah. thought was very, I mean, it's out of character for Snape, but it's not out of character for like a teacher. I think it goes you know? to show you that whatever grudge Harry has against Snape and more importantly, vice versa, um, whatever grudge that Snape has against Harry and his family and the Marauders, uh, Snape is willing to drop it when things are really on the line, like a werewolf is attacking the kids. Mm -hmm. Snape is like, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to defend these kids. Right. And am I misremembering? Doesn't Lupin smack Snape? Like smack him out of the way? You know, it, yeah, I think he either like swipes at them or like, yeah, like sort of smacks him and they they all go flying yeah and like he they knocks, all fall over on, on top of each other and he knocks Sirius flying and so <laughs> i see lupin in werewolf form knock Sirius out of the way and knock snape out of the way and i'm thinking god are they both werewolves now oh because Sirius was human when he got hit right i mean i guess that depends on whether werewolf scratches turn you into a werewolf or not that's true. And speaking of werewolf scratches, um, there isn't a whole lot of service paid to Lupin taking the potion and Lupin being sick, missing classes. But visually, David Thewlis keeps showing up with more and more scratches mm -hmm. on his face. So mm -hmm. we know that something's off. We know yeah. he keeps disappearing and he's not in good shape. Right. I, and that's another example of where I think the storytelling works better visually instead of having to just explain and spell everything out. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where it is helpful that, you know, where they can rely on Potter fans to sort of fill in those blanks that we already know, you know? So it's like, once we see that he's like all scratched, we're like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. You know, when he doesn't turn up for class, we don't really need like a full explanation. Um, we yeah. don't really need to know about the potion. Um, although it doesn't necessarily explain how Snape gets to the Whomping Willow in the film. That's true. He just kind of shows he up. He just shows up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to save the day. <laughs> you can thank me later. <laughs> Alan Rickman's so good in that role. I don't think anybody else could make page 394 as iconic as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the, you know, so pretty much from the point where um, they go under the Whomping Willow through the end of the film, it still is very close to what happens in the book. Um, so when Harry and Sirius are sort of at the shoreline and they're getting attacked before Harry goes back in time, what do we think of the visual of like a soul that they present? Like a, like a glowing marble? Yeah. I love it. I really <laughs> love it because Sirius looks so haggard. His body has been through the wind, the windmill or whatever the expression is. <laughs> His soul has been through the whomping willow. Yeah. And, uh, and yet no matter how dark Sirius's exterior is or how dark his surroundings are, the soul emerges pure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very reflective of the theme in the film that appearances are not everything. Mm -hmm. 
people aren't always who they appear to be on the outside. Mm -hmm. Scabbers wasn't, Pettigrew wasn't, Lupin wasn't, and Snape honestly wasn't because Snape was willing to just drop everything to defend the kids. Right. Which is a lesson they seem to have to learn every single book that <laughs> Snape is this uh, nasty guy, but he's, he's not a bad guy. Right. right. Um, and then Harry, you know, is even not all he appears to be because he may be a 13 year old kid. He may be going through a very rough stage in life. But as soon as he sees that he has it in himself to conjure a Patronus, he can chase a hundred Dementors away from a lake. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many 13 year olds have ever done that. Right, right. And I, I just truly love that scene where he, where he does figure out that it was himself and then he just goes for it. Um, you know, but I, I think the one thing that sort of is lost within that scene is it's so important to Harry to not just to do the Patronus, but to realize why the shape of his Patronus is important, right? I wish they had let that, let that and shine. And we, we never get that explanation. Like nobody would know like why his Patronus is what it is and what it means. Yeah. And I think, I do think that that's a loss because it always comes back to what is inside you and that's your family your loved ones. And Sirius even says that where he tells Harry in their last scene, you can always find them in here. And he puts right. his hand on Harry's chest. And I agree. I think it would have been so much stronger if we had just been able to connect the dots on screen in this medium, mm -hmm. the significance of a stag. Right. It's a really nice film. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Sirius is kind of instructed, uh, Gary Oldman, I should say, is instructed to be this crazy person who's very manic in his scene in The Shrieking Shack. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as you get out of The Shrieking Shack, you see a glimpse of when he's staring up at the castle and when he and Harry finally talk on that bench in the castle. This is just a man underneath yeah. it all. And I, I think I it's, find, yeah. Go ahead. it's really nice to see the manic performance of the crazy man and then just have it fall away mm -hmm. and be very calm, very sincere. And I'm 100% convinced that was deliberate on both Oldman and Quaron. Mm -hmm. I, I find the conversations between Sirius and Harry in this film to be very touching. Yeah. And Daniel Radcliffe has always said that apart from Alan Rickman, Gary Oldman was his favorite actor to work with mm. in that series. And That's I think really it shows. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's a chemistry between them in the writing, in the books, and on screen. And in this whole series, Sirius and Harry really is a highlight. Mm -hmm. And it's great to see it blossom in this story. I definitely agree. And... It's sad to see Lupin packing his trunk at the very end. Um, but visually, something that they do is he packs the case by magic. Mm -hmm. And we not only see, oh, look at the trunk. It's cute to see it assembling itself. They present it in such a way that Lupin having to pack his bags is routine. And I know. something that he's unfortunately had to do 
a very long time. And there's a shot of him walking past this empty classroom with Harry staring down at him. And there's this sense of back to square one for me, but it's just what I've had to do my whole life. So I'm used to it by now. I didn't even think about that. And you're so right. And that just makes it like, oh, like even worse. <laughs> like we don't, even in this film, like we don't know that Snape is the one that like let it slip to everybody. Yeah. We just know that somebody slip. did. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gee, I wonder who. Yeah, exactly. And like, and then, you know, and then, yeah, and then Lupin has to like resign. And I think, and I also think going along with that though, we don't really see how upset Snape is with the fact that like Sirius gets away. As well as we don't really truly get explained the beef between Snape and James and Lupin and Sirius. Like we, ne- that never gets explained to us. We just know that. Yeah. And so we don't really know, like, I guess that's why they would have to say like, oh, somebody, they can't really say Snape because there's not really a, in, if we're just working off the film, there's no real motivation for Snape to do that. Which is a shame because I think that's something that perhaps with a longer runtime, they could have included more and probably should have included more. It's the engine that makes the whole Prisoner of Azkaban story run is the marauders it all comes back to them and their beef with snake well that's the thing and i and i wonder because like they okay so so they made this movie shorter but then like two and a half hour movies became like popular yeah so they they didn't really have to make it shorter they could have gotten away with it it's harry potter if it's three hours long people will watch it well that's the thing exactly yeah Exactly. Lord of the Rings never seemed to have that problem. I don't think any of them are beneath three hours. The, I wonder if, I don't think so. It's admittingly not as much of a forte for me as Harry Potter. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I'm, I'm sure the theatrical ones are probably just under three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know the extended version of Return of the King comes, like when the credits start, it's pretty much exactly four hours. That's a really good one. <laughs> I'm sure we don't want to go into too much detail on a Harry Potter podcast, but that no. <laughs> is a heck of a film. I'll have to do another podcast about just about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> nice. One thing um, that doesn't stand out to me in a great way is when Snape is covering for Lupin and he calls Hermione an insufferable know-it-all. Ron leans over and says, he's kind of right, you know? Uh, And I'm like, no. No, you stood up for her and got detention in the book. I know. Well, this is is where we are starting to see that certain lines from certain characters are given to other people, right? Yeah. So you're right. Ron definitely would not have said that unless it was after Hermione you know, turned in the firebolt or something like that, but they don't have that in this film. Yeah. Um, the, the, if you're going to kill Harry, you're going to have to kill us Two line. That is a Ron line. That they it's not only a Ron line, but line. he's the one that stands up and moves in front of Harry, even though his leg is busted. Exactly. That's how loyal of a friend Ron truly is. Also, they have hints of 
like the beginning of a crush between Ron and Hermione in this film. And that is not in the book. <laughs> nope. So I their, found that really interesting. The relationship goes quite the opposite. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like they have such a huge fight. And yeah. then like in the film, they're like Hermione's grabbing his hand and then like leaning into him after Buckbeak quote unquote dies. I don't know if that's because they wanted to look at the themes of coming of age and kids growing up, uh, taking next steps with relationships. I don't know if that's what they had in mind. Um, I can't think of another excuse though. Or they just wanted more. uh... Oh, uh, there's a moment when they're looking at the shrieking shack right before Malfoy shows up and Hermione's like, uh, do you want to get closer? And Ron's like, oh, okay. And he starts to move next to her. And she's like, no, I mean the shack. (laughs) So that's a very interesting choice that they made. It is an interesting choice. Uh, Have you ever heard the story of Alfonso Cuaron meeting with the leads and giving them homework? Yes, that one I have. (laughs) Yeah. That one I have heard. Maybe it's because Ron wouldn't write it or something. Well, that's the thing. It, like, it sounded like, um, like Daniel, I think, did it like super last minute. Her yeah. mom, like Emma did it like right away. And then Rupert just like didn't do it. And he was like, okay, you understand your characters. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do the homework because Ron wouldn't do it. Great. You understand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> movie Ron is very different from book Ron and I find that a lot of people that haven't read the books but seen the films don't have as high of opinion of Ron which I think is a shame what do you think of the decision to include the firebolt but at the very end to be this final scene and a freeze frame on screaming happy Harry's face it's I, you know, I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I think I'm really used to it, but I don't know. It, it almost seems like it's a detail that they like had to put in so that like Harry would be able to play Quidditch in the next few movies. Yeah. Um, and like a nod to like, okay, Sirius is okay. Like here's, you know, your new broomstick. But they also like don't, like Harry's permission form never gets signed by Sirius. That's true. <laughs> oh yeah, I never even connected that for the Yeah. <laughs> like so I don't know. I mean, I think it's I think it's a cute way to end it. It's like uh, it ends on a very upbeat sort of moment. But yeah. I do think it's kind of a bizarre way to be like this is how we're going to end the film. Yeah, it ends with Harry racing off into the horizon on his yeah, fireball. Yeah. Um, I, given how the rest of the film is tonally and what the themes are about, I, I think I would have really liked if Harry, Ron, and Hermione were, I hate to just play director slash writer, but it would have been nice to have them sitting under that tree, looking out at the lake, admiring like a much brighter day. And then an owl comes uh, bringing the feather and the sign form. And the permission. I know. And then, because then you get to see reconciliation. You see that Sirius is okay. 
Um, and Sirius gives Harry what he's really been missing and wanting in this film, and that's connection with people. And now he's going to be a part of the community that goes to Hogsmeade. He now has a family member who's going to write to him and check in on him. Sirius is okay, even with everything that he's been through. And you can keep tonally what's been consistent in the film mm -hmm. with them just admiring this big, expansive and expensive, I'm sure, uh, set looking out at the lake and just calmly and on a small scale recognizing that everything is going to be okay, no matter how turbulent it is. I think that would have fit the rest of the film so well. I agree. And that would have been like, I think a much better sort of less silly ending. Cause like, I feel like the firebolt's a little silly. It's a little, I don't know. Like, I don't want to say it's like campy, but it's a little campy. The way I describe it is it's a, it's a bold punctuation mark that I'm not sure matches <laughs> the rest of the sentence. That is a really good way to put it. So I think you're right. I think, I think it would have been, because it's not just like, you know, the firebolt's cool. Yeah. But the permission form is Harry now has a guardian that he can trust who actually genuinely cares about him. And that is something Harry has never had before. Trust is in such sort, short supply in Harry's life and especially in this film so far. Exactly. I think it would have been great to give him that. Mm-hmm. Overall, I really admire this film. I think on a technical level, it's superior to most of the others. And it's very clear with that, with the exception of maybe the fourth film, the rest of the films looked at three and said, okay, this is kind of what we want going forward. Because mm -hmm. um, there, there definitely is a Harry Potter formula. <laughs> it was, it was expensive. It was experimented by Chris Columbus. It was set up by Columbus. And then, um, for those that don't know, starting with movie number five, David Yates becomes the director. David Yates has since directed literally every other Wizarding World film since, yes. including mm -hmm. The Fantastic Beasts. And uh, Mike Newell was the one that did four. Four is very stylistically different than three. Yeah. Um, but one reason that four is much different than three is because Mike Newell wanted to make a darker film. And then Alfonso Cuaron showed him an early cut of Prisoner of Azkaban. And Newell's like, well, crap, I should make mine different then. So he moved away from his instincts and tried to make more of a romantic comedy. Interesting, because is, I feel like it would have worked because they all get progressively darker. We have a much bigger overarching storyline throughout yeah. the series that we are going to go through that, you know, really does start in the next book. You know, we sort of laid the foundation with this book and we will see as we go through Goblet of Fire how things really start to ramp up. So I think making Goblet of Fire darker would have been a good idea. And I think back to one of our earlier points, Goblet of Fire as a book really is that leaky cauldron scene with Mr. Weasley summed up. It starts off very bright. There's a lot happening in there. It's very busy with people like happily moving across the tables and using magic. 
and then uh, there are changes. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, big changes. Stick to first year's podcast to find out what happens. Yes. I know. We will be going over Goblet of Fire starting in January, and I'm very excited. I really loved rereading it, and I'm super. I'm I'm really excited to see where we're gonna go with it. Yeah, it's it's such a treat to read and watch the stories of Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire. This is, I think, one of my favorite stretches of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting about this movie with me. This was a real treat. A very, very fine pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And I definitely want you back for Goblet of Fire since I know you like it so much. <laughs> Count me in. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so, Jesse, do you have anything you want to shout out or tell us about or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be in a new uh, YouTube uh, series that will also be sent to Amazon. Uh, that'll be coming out in 2021. It's called Freshman Circus, and it's about the trials, tribulations, and exotic uh, classmates that you find on a Zoom classroom when college has to go online. I love that. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to see that. It's funny. We, we shot the pilot yesterday, and I think we're going to shoot the second episode after Thanksgiving. That's so cool. Yeah. I'll keep you in the loop. Yes, please do. Yeah. Thank you so much again for being here. I really appreciate my, it. My pleasure. I'm so happy I got to do this. Thank you. Yes. And uh, mischief managed? Mischief managed. <laughs> Yay! Sarah with an H, and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T.